0: This is the third day of this September, 2023, Seven Days Sashin. Previously, we explored a couple of Chan masters from the Song Dynasty, which was a major period in the development of of Zen as we practice it today. Today we're going to shift to the writings of a 20th century American Zen teacher. Charlotte Joko Beck. Although this is a completely different time period and cultural setting. The fundamental teaching is the same. Actually, perhaps what's what's different today is that there's greater attention given to lay or householder practice. And also, we have new ways to talk about the human mind and how it functions. The field of psychology as an area of study didn't begin until the 1850s in Europe. It's a modern invention. And it transformed the way we talk about the mind. We now have a mental map and a whole language, a whole set of terms for understanding how the mind functions differently from the brain the physical stuff inside our skull. For example, we talk about there being a conscious, subconscious, and unconscious mind. Whereas the brain is physical, you can see it, Can poke at it and dissect it, store it away in a jar. But the mind is invisible. Where is it? What is it? I'm going to read from what has become a contemporary classic text, Everyday Zen, Love and Work, by Joko Beck. It was published in 1989, and she did go by the name Joko. First, um, a few words about her life. And uh, this is from an excerpt of an obituary notice that was published in the publication Lion's Roar. Joko Beck was born in New Jersey in 1917 and, and died in 2011. She studied music at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music, and worked for some time as a pianist and a piano teacher. She married and raised a family of four children, then separated from her husband and worked as a teacher, a secretary, and an assistant in a university department. She, she began Zen practice in her 40s, with Taizan Maizumi Roshi, from whom she received Dharma Transmission. She also worked with um, two other prominent teachers for a period of time, Yasutani Roshi, who was Roshi Kaplow's primary teacher, and she also worked with Soan Nakagawa Roshi. And then this uh, obit continues. It says she was a founder in 1983 of the Zen Center of San Diego and in 1995 of the Ordinary Mind Zen School. Through her teachings and her work as the author of two modern Zen classics, Everyday Zen and Nothing Special, Joko became a very visible and widely admired force among the first generation of America's convert Buddhists. And in that, she was somewhat of a pioneer as a female teacher. Um, And um, in addition to those two books that were published during her lifetime, There was a third that came out um, posthumously in 2021, just a couple years ago. It's a collection of unpublished talks that her daughter put together, and that one's titled Ordinary Wonder. When uh, When I first started at the Zen Center in the late 1990s, The first book I read was Roshi Kaplow's Three Pillars. And the second was Joko Beck's Everyday Zen. So we'll start from the beginning with the first chapter, which is entitled Beginning Zen Practice. She says, my dog doesn't worry about the meaning of life. She may worry if she doesn't get her breakfast, but she doesn't sit around worrying about whether she will get fulfilled or liberated or enlightened. As long as she gets some food and a little affection, her life is fine. But we human beings are not like dogs. We have self-centered minds which get us into plenty of trouble. If we do not come to understand the error in the way we think, our self-awareness, which is our greatest blessing, is also our downfall. It's so true that dogs are great role models for practice. They live totally in the moment. They don't see themselves as lacking anything. They don't see themselves as downtrodden. Even when they're tired or sick. They don't ruminate about the past. They don't plan the future. (laughs) Although they do seem to have an internal clock of some kind, where when they know when it's treat time, they don't wallow in regret or guilt or feel shame. They don't hold grudges. And they're pretty good at concentration as well, especially when it comes to chasing after something. My partner Tom and I used used to have two rescue greyhounds. They were magnificent. Previously, you know, they had lived lives as racing dogs and so they spent their days chasing after mechanical rabbits and we don't know what their lives were like in the racing track environment. We don't know what they experienced there but it was definitely in their nature to chase after things. and as a condition of adopting them, we actually had to sign a paper saying that we would never allow them to be off-leash unless in an enclosed space. So whenever we opened the back door of our house into the fenced-in yard, they would just run full throttle. They would set their sight on something. It could be a leaf, a squirrel. And there was no trying to call them off. There was no gap. And for the cat people out there, Um, You know, we can say some similar things about cats. They don't ponder the meaning of life. They don't strive for attainment. They're present completely and no-mindedly. They lick their butts. They don't care what others think. They don't compare themselves to others. They sleep much of the day. They don't have to prove anything. And as for Zazen, if you've ever seen a cat lying down, appearing to be sleeping, its body totally relaxed, It's eyes either closed or, you know, kind of unfocused. Doesn't look, look like they're doing anything. And yet, if you look at their ears, their ears are totally alert, totally in tune with any sound. this combination of being relaxed and attentive is what we're working on in doing this practice, moment by moment. And yet, we humans tend to complicate things by living through living our lives through the filter of thoughts. All right, back to Joko. She says, To some degree, we all find life difficult, perplexing, and oppressive. Even when it goes well, as it may for a time, We worry that it probably won't keep on that way. We might might have that worry during Sashin. Around goes well. Will I be able to sustain it? Depending on our personal history, we arrive at adulthood with very mixed feelings about this life. If I were to tell you that your life is already perfect, whole and complete, just as it is, you would think I was crazy. Nobody believes their life is perfect. And yet there is something within each of us that basically knows we are boundless, limitless. We are caught in the contradiction of finding life a rather perplexing puzzle, which causes us a lot of misery, and at the same time, being dimly aware of the boundless, limitless nature of life. So we begin looking for an answer to the puzzle. Yeah, we we do seem to treat life as if it's a puzzle, can imagine all the times you've found yourself feeling uncertain and looking for a resolution should i get a new job or not should i move to a new place should i get involved in a relationship Should I join the Zen Center's training program? Should I leave it? On and on. We rack our brains over these kinds of questions and think that once we got it all figured out, once we put the pieces of the puzzle together Then we'll find happiness. But then we discover it doesn't work that way. Sure, you know, some change in routine or lifestyle can be worthwhile and even necessary, um, depending on the circumstances. But if we think that's what's going to bring us lasting happiness, that's delusion. Basically, the one thing that causes us to suffer is our clinging to duality. And no amount of attempting to change, control, or maneuver around our situation is going to address that and the pain that comes from it. Joko says, the first way of looking is to seek a solution outside ourselves. At first, this may be on a very ordinary level. There are many people in the world who feel that if only they had a bigger car, a nicer house, better vacations, a more understanding boss, or a more interesting partner, then their life would work. We all go through that. Slowly, we wear out most of our if-onlys. If I only had this or that, then my life would work. Not one of us isn't, to some degree, still wearing out our if-onlys. Finally, in looking for the thing outside of ourselves that we hope is going to complete us, We turn to a spiritual discipline. Unfortunately, we tend to bring into this search the same orientation as before. Most people who come to the Zen Center don't think a Cadillac will do, but they think that enlightenment will. Now they've got a new cookie, a new if only. If only I could understand what realization is all about, I would be happy. If only I could have at least a little enlightenment experience, I would be happy. Coming into a practice like Zen, we bring our usual notions that we are going to get somewhere, become enlightened, and get all the cookies that have eluded us in the past. We all want that cookie. It's why we come to sashim over and over. Who wouldn't want to be enlightened? It's not. It's not necessary to judge ourselves for having that aspiration. You know, for for committing ourselves to uprooting delusion. That's not a problem. But sooner or later, as our practice matures, we come to see that we're clinging to it as a goal. We make it into an object. And then it becomes an obstruction. And on top of treating it as a goal, as an end result... We we might even set a timetable. We want it now, not later. ASAP. Joko says, our whole life consists of this little subject looking outside itself for an object. But if you take something that is limited, like body and mind, and look for something outside it, that something becomes an object and must be limited too. So you have something limited looking for something limited. And you just end up with more of the same folly that has made you miserable. We have all spent many years building up a conditioned view of life. There is me. And there is this thing out there that is either hurting me or pleasing me. We tend to run our whole life trying to avoid all that hurts or displeases us, noticing the objects, people, or situations that we think will will give us pain or pleasure, avoiding one and pursuing the other. Without exception, we all do this. We remain separate from our life, looking at it, analyzing it, judging it, seeking to answer the questions. What am I going to get out of it? Is it going to give me pleasure or comfort, or should I run away from it? We do this from morning until night. Does feel like an unending cycle, doesn't it? This uh, seeking out of vain pursuits. In psychology, it's called hedonic adaptation. Once we get what we want, we feel happy and content for a short while, but then we move on to seeking out the next thing, the next greatest thing that's going to make us happy. And another phenomenon is that we might feel guilty or unworthy for doing something that we thought would make us happy. Like, taking a vacation or buying a new car. So we're, we're unhappy if we don't get what we, want, what we want. But we're also unhappy when we do get what we, what we want. Where does that leave us? Then Joko says, underneath our nice, friendly facades, there is great unease. If I were to scratch below the surface of anyone, I would find fear, pain, and anxiety running amok. We all have ways to cover them up. We overeat, overdrink, overwork. We watch too much television. We are always doing something to cover up our basic existential anxiety. Some people live that way until the day they die. As the years go by, it gets worse and worse. What might not look so bad when you are 25 looks awful by the time you are 50. We all know people who might as well be dead. They have so contracted into their limited viewpoints that it is as pain, it is as painful for those around them as it is for themselves. The flexibility and joy and flow of life are gone. And that rather grim possibility faces all of us unless we wake up to the fact that we need to work with our life. We need to practice. We have to see through the mirage that there is an I separate from that. Our practice is to close the gap. Only in that instant, when we and the object become one, can we see what our life is. Close the gap. That's what we're doing each time we make that choice to return to our practice. Each time we've noticed that we've dropped it and return, we're closing the gap. To close the gap is to become intimate with it. And it's the intimacy of not knowing. Not knowing has nothing to do with ignorance or lacking knowledge. Rather, it's not holding onto any thoughts or feelings that arise. Letting them come and go, all on their own. Not engaging with them. Not separating ourselves from life as it is in this one moment. Off, off the mat or uh, off our seat, we can experience that intimacy with our practice in so many ways. The simple awareness of your hands resting in your lap. the awareness of your foot making contact with the floor as you get off the tan, Picking up a cup and pouring water into it. Each and every second is an opportunity to merge with our practice. And it's, it's really critical to keep our practice continuous in this way. Uh, during break periods, during kinheen, during all the transitional points uh, of the Sashin schedule, So we don't widen the gap. And if we do widen it, which we probably will, but when we do, all we got to do is return our attention. And then we close it. One instant is all it takes to close the gap. Joko goes on, enlightenment is not something you achieve. It is the absence of something. All your life, you have been going forward after something, pursuing some goal. Enlightenment is dropping all that. But to talk about it is of little use. The practice has to be done by each individual. There is no substitute. We can read about it until we are a thousand years old, and it won't do a thing for us. We all have to practice. And we have to practice with all our might for the rest of our lives. We all have to do this work ourselves because there's no substitute for direct experience. Words, concepts, thoughts, they remove us from the intimacy of this. The intimacy of not knowing. What happens when we let life unfold moment by moment, meeting it, uniting with it right there? It's like the sense of wonder that one experiences as a stranger visiting some foreign land. You don't know the landscape. You don't know the language, the customs. don't know anything you're seeing everything for the first time that's the kind of intimacy we want to cultivate with our practice And it's not, it's not a one-shot deal as much as we'd like it to be. We've got to commit to closing that gap over and over and over and over. That's the hard part of practice. That effort, giving to it over and over. But each and every one of us is capable of doing it, especially now at this point in Sashin. Thoughts are starting to settle. Sure, they swirl around and they come and go. At times, it might feel like you're overwhelmed by them, but that's just on the surface. Underneath that is bright clarity. working at it, keep closing the gap, not to get anywhere, but to be right here, right now, Next, Joko says, What we really want is a natural life. Our lives are so unnatural that to do a practice like Zen is extremely difficult. But once we begin to get a glimmer that the problem in life is not outside ourselves, we have begun to walk down this path. Once that awakening starts, Once we begin to see that life can be more open and joyful than we had ever thought possible, we want to practice. We enter a discipline like Zen practice so that we can learn to live in a sane way. Zen is almost a thousand years old, and the kinks have been worked out of it. While it is not easy, it is not insane. It is down-to-earth and very practical. It is about our daily life. It is about working better in the office, raising our kids better, and having better relationships. Having a more sane and satisfying life must come out of a sane, balanced practice. What we want to do is to find some way of working with the basic insanity that exists because of our blindness. I'm reminded of that famous saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results, or expecting different results, rather. It's amazing how much time we can spend on autopilot doing the same thing over and over. Same patterns. It's so painful. But we do need to notice those habit patterns. Be aware of them in order to move beyond them. And sashim presents the opportunity to do just that, to break the patterns, to disrupt our default mode, whatever form that takes. It requires us to simply let go of all our attempts to be in control, stop our strategizing, planning and plotting, maneuvering. It's amazing how we, even with the structure of Sashin, we manage to, to do that, We still find a way to stay in control. Then she says, It takes courage to sit well. Zen is not a discipline for everyone. We have to be willing to do something that is not easy. If we, if we do it with patience and perseverance, with the guidance of a good teacher, then gradually our life settles down, becomes more balanced. Our emotions are not quite as domineering. As we sit, we find that the primary thing we must work with is our busy, chaotic mind. We are all caught up in a frantic thinking And the problem in practice is to begin to bring that thinking into clarity and balance. When the mind becomes clear and balanced and is no longer caught by objects, there can be an opening. And for a second, we can realize who we really are. But sitting is not something that we do for a year or two with the idea of mastering it. Sitting is something we do for a lifetime. There is no end to the opening up that is possible for a human being. Eventually we see that we are the limitless, boundless ground of the universe. Our job for the rest of our life is to open up into that immensity and to express it. Having more and more contact with this reality always brings compassion for others and changes our daily life. We live differently, work differently, relate to people differently. Zen is a lifelong practice. It isn't just sitting on a cushion for 30 to 40 minutes a day or 10 or more hours a day as we were doing in Sashin. Our whole life becomes practice 24 hours a day. So that's that's the long view of practice. It's our life. But there's also a short view. And that's the immediacy, the intimacy of this one moment. This one exhalation We'll stop here and recite the four vows.